Good evening, everybody. So pleased to be here tonight and to be beginning this new series in Psalm 119. Um, we're going to be doing this a little bit different, too, with the structure of how we do things. Um, Psalm 119 is broken up into groups. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take it a segment at a time. We'll teach a segment, have a little bit of worship, teach another segment, have a little bit of worship, to give us some time to reflect and to just, uh, you know, let God speak to us about what we've just heard. And so the structure of these Wednesday nights is going to be a little bit different, but I think you'll find it a very, very rewarding. I've been wanting to do this for a long time with a study through the Psalms. So that's why you see the worship team right up here on stage. It's not like, wow, they just were dying to be closer to the pulpit or something like that. And uh, that's what we're going to do here this evening. So let me begin with prayer. Father, we're very grateful uh, for this wonderful place where we can come with so many other people, Lord, who are interested in what you have to say to us through your word. And so now we pray that you would speak to us uh, through the words you've given to us, but Lord, also through the presence of your Holy Spirit. We want to hear what you have to say to us this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, the the first section that we're going to go through this evening, I'm actually not going to get into the text of Psalm 119 at all, but I felt that such a long psalm deserved an introduction. I mean, most of you, if you're anything like me, you look at Psalm 119 and you're afraid of it. It's 176 verses. It's far and away the biggest chapter in the Bible. It's far and away the biggest psalm among the psalms. So I think it's appropriate for us to give this long psalm an adequate introduction. For this series, we're going to call it the Golden Alphabet, uh, after Charles Spurgeon and many others who called it this name. And they call it the Golden Alphabet because this psalm is structured after the Hebrew alphabet, and it's arranged in an acrostic pattern. You see, there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and this psalm contains 22 units of eight verses each. Now, each of the 22 sections is given to a letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and each line within those eight verses begins with that letter of the Hebrew alphabet. You'll see as we get into our first section a little bit later. The closest parallel to this kind of writing in the Bible is in, found, is in Lamentations chapter 3, which is also divided into 22 sections. And there are a few other passages in the Hebrew scriptures that use an acrostic pattern. The author of this psalm is unnamed. We don't know who wrote it. Now, it's kind of interesting. Almost all the older commentators say that David, King David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, that he wrote this psalm. I just figure they, they assume that any great psalm must have been written by the greatest psalmist, David himself. But we must admit, there's nothing in the text that tells us that it was David. More recent commentators or modern commentators tend to consider it to be a post-exilic psalm coming from the days of Nehemiah and Ezra. Personally, I go towards an agreement with saying that David wrote it, but I certainly won't insist upon it because I think if it was important for us to consider that David wrote it, God would have told us so in his word. But we notice that this psalm was probably written over a long period of time and later compiled. 
Because there's not a definite flow of thought that starts at verse 1 and ends at verse 176. It's more a series of meditations upon a single theme. That The sections and verses are not like a chain where each link is connected, but it's more like a string of pearls where each pearl has equal but independent value. Now, the theme of this great psalm is really wonderful. The theme is God's word. I just want that to soak into your hearts and minds for a moment. This is how important, how highly valued the word of God is. That the longest chapter in the Bible and the longest psalm in the Bible, by uh, far and away, not by any close margin, but far and away, is given over to the theme of the goodness and the greatness and the glory of God's word. This psalm refers to Scripture over and over again. And it's remarkable for how often it refers to God's written revelation, His Word. God's Word is referred to in almost every verse. Now, the ancient Jewish scholars, the Masorites, used to say that the Word of God is mentioned in every verse except verse 122. Other people reckon it differently. There's a little bit of disagreement about verses 84 and 90 and 121 and 132. But by no question, Scripture is mentioned in at least 171 of 176 verses. Now, it uses a variety of different words to refer to Scripture. By the way, you should be aware of this. They say, and even though I've heard on you know, certain websites and such, that it's really not true, but they say that Eskimos, for example, have you know, uh, 20 different words for snow and things like this. It's something they're so familiar with that they describe it many different ways. Well, it's very much that way with the Hebrew mind and the Word of God. There are eight main terms used in this psalm used to describe the Word of God. And I'll just mention them to you briefly. Now, Each one of them refers to God's Word, His written revelation to us, but they consider it just from a little bit different angle. For example, the one used most frequently, the word Torah or Torah, translated most of the time law, it's used 25 times in Psalm 119. Its parent verb means to teach or to direct. Coming from God, it means both his law and his revelation. It can be used of a single command, or it can be used of the whole body of God's revelation. Then the next one is the word word, the Hebrew word dabar, used 24 times. The idea is simply of the spoken word, God's revealed word to man. It's what comes forth from the mouth of God to man. The third word, in third in, used in terms of frequency, is the word judgments. That's the Hebrew word mispatam, and it's used 23 times. It comes from the word that means to judge or determine or to, to discern, because they judge our words and what is right and wrong, and we decide accordingly from that. Then the next word is the word testimonies. It's used 23 times. It's related to the word to witness, to obey his testimonies, what God has revealed. Then there's the word commandments. It's used 22 times. It emphasizes the authority of what's being said, just like our English word commandment. Then there's the ancient word that's translated statutes. That's used 21 times. That, that noun is derived from the root verb to engrave or to descri- inscribe. It has the idea of something that's so binding and so true that it's engraved in stone. 
Then used 21 times is the word that's translated precepts. This is a word that's drawn from the world of an officer or an overseer. It's the man who has the authority to look deeply into a situation and to take action. So it has the idea of the particular instructions of God. And then finally, there's another word that's usually translated word, but it's a different Hebrew word, not Torah, but Imra, and it's translated, it's used 19 times. It's similar in meaning to the other one, that's the Hebrew word dabar, yet it's a different term. It can refer to anything that God has spoken. Now, when you think about it, this psalm is going to put these eight words into a kaleidoscope of deep, intimate communion with God, and it's going to turn it over, over and over, and over the next several weeks, we're going to enjoy the picture as we spin this kaleidoscope together. The theme of the glory of God is explored over and over again in this psalm, but it's always in connection with God itself. This is not a theological treatise on the nature of God's revelation to us. This is a man's intimate communion with God, discussing God's word with him and hearing back from God about his word. Most of the psalm is in the form of a prayer asking for God to speak to the psalmist. Now, in this wonderful psalm, from its great length, it it helps us to see how majestic the scriptures are. Let me read you an extended quotation from Charles Spurgeon. He says this, This wonderful psalm, from its great length, helps us to wonder at the immensity of Scripture. From its keeping to one subject, it helps us to adore the unity of Scripture, for it is but one. Yet from the many turns it gives to the same thought, it helps you to see the variety of Scripture. Some have said that there is an absence of variety, but that is merely the observation of those who have not studied it. I have weighed each word and looked at each syllable with lengthened meditation. And I bear witness that this sacred song has no tautology or needless repetition in it. But it is charmingly varied from beginning to end. Its variety is that of a kaleidoscope. From a few objects, a boundless variation is produced. In the kaleidoscope, you look once and there is a strangely beautiful form. You shift the glass just a little, and another shape, equal in delicacy and beauty, is before your eyes. So it is. Now, being such a long psalm, and the longest chapter in the Bible, this psalm has been of some historical note. There have been many lengthy works written on this psalm. The one that took my attention most of all was a guy by a man named Thomas Manton, a Puritan preacher and writer. Now, I don't have this book or these books, but he wrote a three-volume work on Psalm 119 with a total of 1,677 pages. His work has more than 100, it has 190 chapters, more chapters than there are verses in the psalm. Luther said that he prized this psalm so highly that he wouldn't take the whole world in exchange for one page of it. Some great people have memorized this whole psalm and found great blessing in doing so. John Ruskin, the 19th century British writer, memorized it. William Wilberforce, the great abolitionist of slavery in England, he memorized the entire psalm. Uh, Henry Martin, a 19th century pioneer missionary to India, And David Livingston, the 19th century uh, pioneer missionary to Africa, 
Each of these men all memorized Psalm 119. Now, when I was teaching on Psalm 119 in Germany, I had a couple of people come up to me who said that they had memorized Psalm 119. So you can speak to me at another time if you've memorized this psalm. I have not. But my favorite story about Psalm 119 concerns a man named George Weishart, who was the Bishop of Edinburgh in the 17th century. Weishart was condemned to death, and he would have been executed. But when he was on the scaffold, he made use of a custom that allowed the condemned person to choose one psalm to be sung before they put him in the hangman's noose. (laughs) Weishart chose Psalm 119. And so they were making their way through the entire psalm, singing it. And before two-thirds of the psalm was sung, a rider arrived with his pardon and his life was spared. Let's think about it. If he would have chose Psalm 23, he'd be dead. (laughs) Well, friends, this psalm is a wonderful psalm, and we're just going to prepare our hearts with a song of worship, and then we'll consider the first section, the section of Aleph. Father, prepare us now to come in and worship you and give you honor and to prepare our hearts for this glorious psalm. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 